0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCur. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower@gmail.com. at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas
1: 11 through 13. Let's start the show!
2: Eddie and Roland meet Stephen King, who is their maker. He is as shocked to find out they exist as they are him. They palaver about their existence, the writing of the Dark Tower, and how they came to be. Under hypnosis, King also reveals how the Crimson King has terrorized King since he was a child. Meanwhile, Jake, Callahan, and Oi finally show up and are on the trail of Mia slash Susanna. They pick up Black 13 and hide it somewhere, safe. Then they head off to the Dixie Pig to save Susanna, or die trying. Before entering the Dixie Pig, Susanna and Mia hear a busker play Man of Constant Sorrow. Inside they meet Sayer. Susanna goes into labor, and, only now at the end, Mia realizes she's been misled. The main narrative of the book then ends with all the loose ends wrapped up in a nice tidy bow.
1: And spit take. Even though it was written down, I had no idea that was coming. We're basically at the end of Song of
0: Susanna. I know we have one more episode where we're gonna talk about the final wrap-up, but we reached the end of the narrative essentially in this. And one of the most important things that happens in this book is that we meet Stephen King
2: as a character in his own story. What the hell? It's been foreshadowed for a while, and it has finally come to pass. We find Stephen King, who is referred to as both a tail spinner and a word slinger. Not quite the same uh, coolness factor as a gunslinger, but eh, it'll work.
1: Yeah. Although if you... Kind of connect those
0: two terms directly to each other. It makes it seem like gunslingers throw guns.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. Which is not the way that... Yeah,
2: He should be a bullet slinger, right?
1: Yeah, or a slug slinger. Ooh,
2: I like that. Yes, but yes, yeah, Stephen King's a character. This seems like, uh, as Joe Biden would say, a big fucking deal. It's not often that a an author shows up in his own story but it has happened before. Oftentimes in metafiction, that's what this is about. I guess the real question is, what impact does it have on the story and what are we supposed to take from this? In our last episode, we talked about how Eddie felt an innate desire that he needed to go meet this king person, that he was nearby and that he meant something to the story and that he encourages Roland. Like, I know we're cutting it close on time, but we need to check this out. Do we feel that it was necessary here? We learn a lot, but does it impact the story in a way we're expecting? I think that it works,
0: and Stephen King hangs everything around this in an effective way. But if it were excised from the story, if Eddie and Roland, instead of going to see Stephen King, they just went further on their adventure, I kind of feel like the story would still be largely the same. Mm. At least
2: from what we know so far. From what we know so far, it seems that way. You get the sense at the end of that section, they realize they never asked King where they need to go to get back into through the thinny space where the walk-ins are coming from to get to where they need to where Susanna is. But they also feel like they
0: kind of already know.
2: Yeah, so that was sort of the one piece of information that would have been a big impact. They sort of feel like, oh, we can get it. However, they did learn of... Not only the genesis of the Dark Tower story, but really the genesis of themselves, that they were an idea out of Stephen King's mind, or as Stephen King starts to intimate, maybe not out of his mind, but out of some other force that has whooshed itself through King and he just sort of feels the need to pour out, that there comes times in his life when he needs to write about the Dark Tower. Yeah, and he has no choice. Yes. That unlike... His other books, where he feels, hey, I get the inspiration. This is one that's beyond inspiration. It's more of a just something flowing through him, a force, almost like Ka, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, like there's a line in
0: here that basically, I think it's Eddie who just makes the leap to equate Tower and Rose and Rose and King. So somehow there's an analog, or maybe that they are reflections of the same thing in just different forms Mm. and we've been introduced to the importance of the rose and the explanation of the idea that the rose is the other end of the axle of the tower that all existence revolves around so without the rose the tower can't exist and without the tower the rose doesn't mean anything and if stephen king is the rose then basically stephen king is what is helping to hold up the tower, the person of Stephen King, not his creation, not his imagination, but the person. Mm. I'm not sure what
2: to make of all that,
0: that King is the analog of the Rose.
2: I like how you put that. And you mentioned that King is the Rose's twin. And we've seen so much twinning in these books Uh, Mm. between the twins and the last one. The fact that when King sees Eddie, And talks about him. He basically says, I didn't create you. I created Cuthbert, but you're his twin, you know. And Roland has been making that connection often that he sees Eddie and Cuthbert and vice versa. And King states it outright to that effect. So there does seem to be this importance of, of King and this Rose. And I guess really we have to see where this lets off, especially because if they need to protect the Rose, do they need to protect King as well? And they've talked about how. There may be forces that are working against Stephen King and even writing the book, but it's imperative that he writes this book. And that's part of what happens when Roland puts him under hypnosis so that he can continue to write these books.
0: Yeah. Once again, it's Eddie that speculates the connection or that there might be these forces working against King and working against his efforts to write the Dark Tower story. And because this is fantasy and science fiction, and it has magic and time travel involved, I guess it's theoretically possible that characters that King has yet to create, or at least one in in Eddie, directly confronting King and saying, yeah, you haven't thought of me yet, but you will, you know, kind of thing. So the timey-wimey stuff makes sense there, at least it adds up. But there's also this kind of stated risk that there are forces working against King to the point where maybe King needs to be first silenced, and if not silenced, then maybe removed from the game board. Hmm. But isn't King the source of the story? Isn't the story itself what is kind of in this circular way, like in a feedback loop back to King? So like his own imagination, his own creation as the author is now something that is cosmically big and somehow on a feedback loop to try to undermine his efforts to create the very thing that it is that
2: uh it's making my head hurt with the whole you you almost need a uh, diagram like have you ever seen the diagram for that movie primer Mm -hmm. they have all the different timelines that exist and how they fold back up on on top of each other yeah it, it can hurt your head real quick right i will say this chapter is the most engaged I've been in this book so far, though. Whether or not we feel it is necessary for the story and working out all the paradoxes and the details of this, the interplay and interaction between King and his creations and our view of King when you and I are of an age where we probably started reading King when he was still a little bit of a, an addict to say the least a little bit. Mm -hmm. But over the last 20 years or so, he's taken on really a different view in my mind. Like I see him as this, if not elderly, an older guy who has adult children that he hangs out with. And if you see his social media presence, he sort of just seems like a normal guy, right? He likes baseball. He drinks, you know, he, he might have a beer with you. He talks about his dog. He tweets about politics and everyday events. Um, He just seems like a regular dude. Mm -hmm. But when you see him in this setting where he's this young, hungry writer. Just a tiny bit of success. A little bit of success, enough to make him buy that Jeep Cherokee that he wanted, but still living in a sort of ramshackled house and still having to pick up his kids from daycare and liking to have a drink in the morning, even though maybe I shouldn't have it before noon, but hey, it'll be all right. And What's a second one at this point, And maybe what's a third one? <laughs> it's an entirely different character. And I just love to see how that interplay worked with Roland, how Roland reacted to him, how Eddie reacted to him. It's just been a really fun chapter, I thought.
0: Yeah, and even down to like physical appearance where Roland and King look at each other and, and Eddie can't help but see a strong resemblance that they're not uh, twins, but they're like father and son. Yes. or grandfather and grandson. They're definitely related. They have the same blue eyes. They have same physical you know, stature. It reminds me of the fact that Eddie has always called Roland long, tall, and ugly. And if King has always sort of imagined Roland to look a little bit like himself, has he just been like, constantly self-deprecating his own appearance. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, basically, I imagine uh, the gunslinger looks like me, and I'm going to have every other character in the book comment on how hard it is to look at him.
2: <laughs> Tall and ugly, right? Yeah. So I, I'm interested to see if King keeps appearing, what more interaction he has, or if it's only this chapter. I do want to mention, and we'll put this in the show notes, is that they're was an interview that fellow author Neil Gaiman conducted with Stephen King, and I believe it was published in one of the English newspapers, um, and this was done in 2012, so it was shortly after When Through the Keyhole was published. They talk a little bit about The Dark Tower. Gaiman says, now that he's finished the story, he's trying to decide how much he can rewrite it. If he views the sequence as one very long novel, can he do a second draft? He hopes so. Currently, Stephen King is a character in the fifth and sixth Dark Tower books, and Stephen King, the nonfictional author, is wondering whether to take him out on the next draft, which I thought was interesting because now it's six years later. I think King has said he's done with revising at this point. Like, I don't think he has Mm -hmm. any more wish to go back. I mean, obviously, he could uh, change his mind, but I think it's interesting that he still is playing around with the idea of, oh, maybe I should change it and maybe not include myself as a character. And I just wonder what the book would look like without that. Because even though you and I were at lesser degrees surprised at this outcome, that King appeared, Yeah, we can see now that it's been foreshadowed for quite a bit. The fact that there's a lot of references to stories that play a part in this. There's been a number of references in the last couple of books about King and whether you know who he is and the whole books that appear on the bookshelf in the, in the theater of the or the restaurant of the mind, so it's interesting that he still doubts himself, but maybe he won't George Lucas it and go back and play with it
0: <laughs> I mean that kind of goes back to your original question, which is how different would the story be if this whole sequence didn't happen? I think that the the time that the, the king spent with his own characters was a fascinating moment in the book, and perhaps one of the I don't know if it's like the best part of this book, but I think it's the most important. Mm. But I still feel that if you just clipped this out, just like a clean edit, Roland and Eddie just turn left instead of turning right or whatever, and they just go on to wherever they were going anyway. I think the book, as a from a narrative structure perspective, would suffer, but I don't think the story would. Right.
2: One other question I had, and I don't know if it's really that important but as i was reading this i was wondering how much of this character of stephen king is true and real and what's made up and what's not you know he name drops friends of his and the babysitter of his kids and towns Mm -hmm. and locations and i was curious to some extent wondering is this true is this real did this really happen is this how other obviously other than the supernatural stuff i assume but even the stories he tells about how he came up with the idea for the dark tower and that he had an outline that went missing and that things that happened when he was a child played into his thoughts on how the book would be structured or or written in characters. Like I wondered how much of that was real or not. And I don't know if it matters or not, but it did fascinate me. Yeah,
0: I don't know if it does matter. I kind of assumed right from the get-go that this was a fictionalized version of life events. You know like any good lie has some basis in truth, so that it it feels real. I kind of feel like that's sort of what's happening here. I suspect that that childhood trauma that goes back to like the trying to run away, getting in trouble, being punished to go into the barn and saw wood or chop wood or whatever, and then seeing some decaying farm animal bodies and stuff like that. I suspect that all happened, mm. whether or not there were bright red spiders crawling around in the body uh, or the decomposing body. I don't know that that, that part is real. Like I suspect it's not. I think it's important for whatever reason that we've been talking about the Crimson King being this force of entropy and evil leading up to this point so far. So the fact that these were red spiders seems like this is King Mm. just sprinkling more fiction, dust onto what actually happened to him as a child and putting the crimson king into the that moment i guess it's not that interesting to to think like oh yeah of course this isn't 100 percent truth yeah. this is a this is a work of fiction and even like the whole journal entry that we're going to talk about in our next episode with dakota that also can't all be real no but there's enough reality in it
2: to make it seem
0: real, or that it could have been real. Yeah,
2: I'm interested in talking about that part, too, because I like that part as well. It was good. So, again, we've been leading up to this. It seems pretty important. We're not convinced that it's totally necessary, but they'll have another book to go, so we'll see where it leads. Yeah. So, Jay, Calhan and Jake finally showed up. I thought maybe uh, when Roland hypnotized King, he told them not to remember those characters because it seems like (laughs) They haven't been in this book for so since the first or second chapter. I was wondering where they were.
0: Yeah, you never know what other uh hypnotic suggestions Roland might have given King at that moment. If you could get rid of that
2: Jake kid, I won't have to kill him at some point. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. So Callahan and Jake show up and what stood out for me is that Jake seems like if not a different character He's in a very different mood than he has been the rest of the series. Yeah, he is. When we first see him, he's flipping out on a taxi driver uh, because he thinks Oi might be hurt. And then by the end of the chapter, he is almost on a death wish, like he's pretty convinced that he and Callahan are going to charge into the Dixie Pig with gun and plates of guns of just say the plates are blazing i was gonna say i I was gonna fix it but yeah the the (laughs) guns are blazing and the plates are flying and he's pretty convinced that they're gonna both go down and die and i'm wondering what what what's happened to jake here and is this a good change or not i agree that jake is definitely at least in those first
0: moments which they go flying through the door just like all the other characters in in the book And Jake and Calhoun are disoriented. They kind of land in random places. So Jake's freaked out. He's already upset about all this disorientation everything. And then he thinks that that Oi may have gotten hit by the taxi. So he's scared and defensive. We talked in the past how when Benny Sleitman died, Hmm. that was kind of like the final blow for Jake in terms of his long, gradual... Descent into this a gunslinger, a warrior, and also a person who is capable of duplicity. And he didn't like that about himself. And Jake has always been one of the characters in the story that's always been the representative of lightness and positivity and the potential for growth and maybe a good outcome, you know, just like overall. Like he's not yet a ruined person the way Roland is in Mm. a lot of ways. Right. But now we see Jake is scared and he's having a basically just like a tantrum. I mean, he's just scared and therefore that makes him angry. And that makes me disappointed in the character of Jake in this moment. By this point in time, Jake is fully a gunslinger. Callahan recognizes him as such later in the book or or later in this stanza and allows Jake to take the lead because he's the gunslinger. Callahan is not. Roland and Eddie and Susanna all recognize Jake as a gunslinger and he's just as deadly and just as effective in battle as they are. But in this moment, if it had been Eddie, if it had been Susanna or certainly Roland, none of them would have drawn their guns on this taxi driver because the taxi driver was not a threat. They would have a, praised the threat and judged it to not exist and found another way to extricate themselves from that moment but jake just went crazy is it because he's still pretty young basically he's still a kid maybe is it because his loyal companion oi was almost struck by a taxi maybe but i still i think as a
2: gunslinger he should have done better now it could just be that he's a New Yorker. And once you put a New Yorker back in New York, they just act crazy. It could be. That's my understanding of how the city is. Yeah. Everyone's just pulling guns on each other and <laughs> there's just random shootings all the time. I mentioned earlier, the ending's pretty bleak towards for them as well. Like Their plan of action seems to be, we know Susanna's at the Dixie Pig. Let's go and guns a-blazing and we're probably going to die.
1: Yeah.
0: Once again, pretty disappointed in Jake right now. He's, uh,
2: he should be smarter than this. This might be where Callahan says, you know what? I am following your lead here, Jake, but maybe we should reconsider this because this might not be the best of plans. If your goal is to rescue Susanna and your only plan
0: is what you suspect is a guaranteed failure, then don't do the plan. Come up with a different plan. They have such a fatalistic attitude when they, just before they go through callahan even gives jake last rights yeah so like if you think you're gonna fail then don't do it
2: who said discretion is the better part of valor or somebody did
0: somebody said
2: i've heard that before the other interesting thing that jake and father callahan do is they have the scene where they have to take a hold of black 13 and figure out a place to hide it because they're afraid that the man in black or the Crimson King or some of their lackeys are going to get a hold of it and who knows what damage they'll be able to to bring to the world. And so they figure, we need to hide it somewhere safe. And they've got this perfect place, these coin-op lockers where they can hide it because they know things never get stolen from there and it's a perfect place. And it turns out, Jay, that these coin-op lockers are underneath the World Trade Center. Yeah. Which... They decide it's going to be perfectly safe because the only way that something bad could happen is if the building falls on top of it. Well, good thing that's not going to happen, right?
0: Yeah. And considering that King wrote this just a a few short years after the towers actually did fall, you got to wonder what he was driving at there. Was he trying to perhaps suggest that the presence of this massively powerful, malevolent force of Black 13? in the basement of the world trade center in new york city could that have been a partially the reason for the destruction of those buildings that it cast its evil far and wide and caused itself to be the the epicenter of of this act of terrorism or and maybe these aren't mutually exclusive but it also makes me wonder they say the only thing way this could go wrong is if the building came down on top of black 13 that did happen so did that destroy black 13 we have seen in our interactions with other parts of the wizard rainbow that these glass these magic glass spheres are very powerful and and they are packed with magic and malevolence but they're still glass they're still fragile right they're physically delicate items. So like just falling off of a table or landing on a stone or being shot out of the sky or something like that <laughs> or perhaps having two of the tallest buildings in the world come crumbling down on top of you. Is that the end of black 13?
2: When you had first proposed it like this, I when I did the initial reading, I thought, ah, they put it here and it's going to be destroyed. So at least some good is going to come of the towers falling. But when you said that perhaps the malevolence of Black 13 is what drew the planes there or drew the the idea that this was going to be where something bad happens. That also made a lot of sense to me. So I don't think that those are two mutually exclusive ideas. And I do like that idea of where you're coming from and I can see it. One would hope that
1: Black 13 is destroyed. Yeah. I mean, King kind of sets up
0: Black 13 to be the single most evil object in the entire dark tower universe yeah it's like it's just pure evil and immense power packed into a tiny glass sphere and directly associating it with one of the worst attacks on american soil in recent memory it seems appropriate somehow
2: yeah agreed jay we've talked before about how this book is called song of Susanna* and how the structure of the book is by stanzas and it wasn't until this section that it really clicked with me why it's called that. We had talked earlier about how not only is the idea of the Song of Susanna m- maybe just a song, but also sort of an epic story. Right. This chapter, the last chapter of the book, really is the end of that epic story for Susanna in some ways. It's been building up this entire time to the birth of this child. and. The last line of the book is when the child is born, and that's where where we're at. And not only does that epic story sort of come to a head here, but there's also a lot of reference to music in this section that I think is important and really ties together this whole song aspect that King's been playing with. In particular, when Susanna and Mia are walking towards the Dixie Pig, they encounter a busker. Mm-hmm. And the busker is playing Man of Constant Sorrow
1: constant sorrow all through his days I am a
2: man of constant sorrow I've seen trouble all my days
1: Hi, bid farewell to old Kentucky the place where I
2: Um, which has come up a couple of times already in the book. But Susanna takes this opportunity to sort of take control and stop and ask him to sing all the verses of Man of Constant Sorrow. And she sings along with him. There's Susanna is actually singing a song. And it's a song that's important to her because of her time as Odetta during the civil rights marches in the 60s. This was a song they sang. In fact, there's one verse that's not very well known in the buskers and press that she knew it that was used during the, the civil rights and I think that the song is important not only because it's sort of bringing back Odetta but also how it ties in the civil rights her time with her mother and her sort of life's work and how Mia is impacted by this so Mia and Susanna have been having this back and forth through this entire book about what her role is going to be mia has been promised something Susanna says they're probably lying to you Mia's is not sure what to believe and there's been this struggle throughout and I think when we hear this song is when it comes to a head yeah I mean this has been
0: the entire pregnancy the, the entire term of the pregnancy when Mia has I exi- guess first come to exist as part of Susanna has been a massive learning experience, a massive education for Mia. Mia, we've learned previously that she's been this sort of supernatural, eternal being, but she existed outside of humanity. She was tormented by the ability to get just close enough to envy humanity, envy family, envy the act of motherhood, but not have it for herself. But it also seemed like she couldn't get close enough to Connect with them in any way except through sexual contact. There was never any evidence of conversation. Perhaps it was like watching all of humanity around her, all of society that she could intermingle with through like a TV screen with the volume all the way down. Like she could see what's going on, she could observe the actions, but she could never fully understand them because she either wasn't aware of or couldn't comprehend the conversations that connected these actions, the meaning behind the physical gestures that she could see. Mm. So it was only when she joined forces with Susanna mentally by joining her body physically that she started to learn things because she could actually have these conversations, these arguments and these battles of wills that she started to learn. And this was her final lesson. This was her final I kind of now know what it means to be a person and to be a mother. And now I know everything that I've never had and I never will have. It's this incredibly tragic moment for Mia as well because you sense her failure. We've seen it coming. We've understood far better than she has that she's not going to get what she wants. Nope. She's either been willfully ignorant of that or just incapable of truly understanding it until this song connects some circuit in her mind and she realizes it. And it's, it all goes back to what you said. The song connects to the civil rights movement, which for some reason, Odetta has a really strong association back to her own mother. And these small moments, like the freshly baked gingerbread yep, and the smells in the house and the comfort of the of just sitting with her mom in the room that's that's all of it right there and it's it almost it didn't it didn't quite for me anyway it, it almost makes you pity yeah yeah but
1: she's she's made so many bad decisions up to this point i, I don't really don't nope. feel bad for her so no nope. so we mentioned that the last line of the book
2: is the baby being born. And I sort of rushed through this last chapter because I was waiting for the gunfight and the plate throwing that was going to happen. And it's not there. Jay, is this really the end of this book? Where, where's the action? Where's Where's Roland? Where's Where's Eddie? What, what's happening here? It's just, we're left on another cliffhanger. And it's an odd cliffhanger because... King's got a captive audience. He's already he had already announced. I've written all three the last three books. Mm -hmm. The publication date was known. I think book seven's coming out three months after this book came. So I know that the people who finished this book weren't going to have to wait six years like they did some of those other books, and they knew it was coming. But certainly they must have gone to the end and been like, "Really? You couldn't have just published the next book the next day? Like we had to wait another three months? Come on!" That's an
0: interesting choice that they made. I mean. It must have been uh, up to his publisher at that point to just have a three-month window between the two books. But
1: uh,
0: but I don't know for sure.
1: He could have published them
0: both on the same day. Yeah, right? He did it with regulators and, um,
2: and desperation. And it just seems odd. But after I had given it a little bit more thought, the title of this book is Song of Susanna. It's all about Susanna building up through this pregnancy. It sort of seems necessary that it ends with the birth of the child, and then we see what the aftermath is in the next book. So it sort of made a little bit of sense to me. I know we still have another, what, 30 or 40 pages of, of the coda that's coming after this. But
1: But uh,
0: yeah, that doesn't even that feels like it's not really part of the story.
2: No, it does feel like sort of a I, I need to get this information out somewhere and this is the best place to put it. Type of thing. While I was upset that there wasn't more to this story at this point, I could sort of understand why it ended here. What were your thoughts? King
0: left this to the very last line of the narrative, discounting the coda. The very last sentence of the book, of the story that is in this book six, is the baby is born. Like, yep. I was starting to think, like, I'm reading, I'm getting closer and closer to the end of the stanza, and like, the baby's still not born yet. The baby's still not born yet. I wasn't like you, like, where's the gunfight? I was like, where's the baby <laughs> a- at this point? And I started to really suspect very strongly that he was going to pull another Blaine the Mono on me. And just to give me and all the other fans a big middle finger from all the way from Maine, <laughs> hey guys, guess what? I'm going to take the last page of book six and I'm just going to tuck it into page one of book seven just. To mess with you and he didn't but he cut it really close like it almost <laughs> felt like he just like he didn't even finish that last sentence like and then the baby was but and then like what
2: but we don't get to see the baby so it's not like v the miniseries when we were uh, kids where you actually get to see the lizard come out of uh out of the girl the lizard alien baby right mm-hmm. so we don't know what this baby looks like we just know that it's been born
0: Well, no, is it going to unhinge its jaw and eat an entire guinea pig
2: hole?
1: Maybe. Oh. Oh.
2: Well, we'll have to stay tuned till next time to find out what is the baby and what does it look like? And will it eat Susanna like we're afraid it might? And will there be a gunfight? But until then, we'll have to uh, satiate ourselves with some fun stuff.
0: Yeah. Fun stuff will get us by.
2: Fun stuff always gets us by. I'll
0: start. There was a really great line in, in this part of the book that was, I think telling stories is like pushing something, pushing against uncreation itself, maybe. I really like this line. I think this speaks to King's view on writing and creation and also on maybe a more general perspective on art, that art of any form is powerful and important because it is pushing against uncreation itself. Mm. When somebody uses their creativity and imagination to make something that just didn't exist before, whether it's a work of fiction, a painting, a sculpture, or any form of art, the world is richer for it. And it couldn't have existed except through the sheer force of will combined with the imagination of somebody. Art is very important, and art is very powerful, and I think this line... Encapsulates that so effectively that I'm going to have to remember that the next time I talk to somebody about why art is important.
2: Yes. So, to that end, because I agree with everything you just said, I want to point out that King makes a number of pop culture references in the section that he appears in, Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense, right? Like, he is pop culture. These aren't all of them, but we get Dumbo, Tinkerbell, Jethro Tull, ZZ Top, Sergio Leone. Um, They talk about the day the music died with the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly and Richard Adams, the author, John Lennon, John Wayne. And to some extent, what you're saying about telling stories and pushing it something and creating art, yet King is really a master at creating art, not out of wholesale against uncreation, because a lot of what he comes up with is an amalgam of what other art exists and bringing it together in a new form. You could say that about all art, right? Well, yeah, to some extent. I mean, somebody at some point had the very first idea, right? I mean, that gets a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, about like, somebody actually has to have the idea to start it off, right? It can't just be that there was no idea, like it came from somewhere. King's okay with that. I I, I think that that's all right with coming up with an amalgam. You know, he also mentions all the literary stuff, Lord of the Rings, Gormenghast, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, and that Raven guy. (laughs) He talks about Richard Bachman and then uh, Thomas Wolfe and Maxwell Perkins, the editor. So all these just name drops. And to some extent, it's, hey, I'm acknowledging their existence. But I also wondered, is he being a little bit too obvious in some of this? Like, you and I sort of had to pull some of these out and rely on scholars to figure out, oh, yeah, he's referencing this here. And, And here he just sort of lays it out like, Oh, yeah. When I created Roland, I had just seen Sergio Leone's The Man With No Name trilogy, and I thought, oh, that'd be a good thing to write about. And oh, yeah, I was thinking, because I was a young guy, I'd love to write my own Lord of the Rings someday. And so then I started the Dark Tower. I mean, is he putting too fine a point on it? Like, Do we need him as a character to say those things when it might have been a little bit cooler, us just sort of knowing it and figuring it out as a reader?
0: I don't think he's hitting us over the head with this. It didn't strike me as like putting too fine a point on it because we have had the, the joy of discovering these things for ourselves as we've read the story to this point. It's only here where King has made himself into a character in his own book where he's sort of like in the a metafiction way, another onion layer deeper, pulls back the curtain a little bit and shows the creator being inspired to in what leads to his creation. And in general terms, I find that fascinating when he talks about those things in his forewords or his afterwards, or when he talks about his books in another book and says, Yeah, I was doing this, that, or the other, or I was talking to this person or this scholar, or rereading this or seeing that movie, and it made me, it shaped a character or it inspired a story. I find that
1: always fascinating like oh i read the book that he wrote and it was really fun and now i know that the thing that made him think of that yeah that's cool too
0: it might be a little different because we're talking about the fictional king as the character in king's story that is inspired by these things and that's why it feels like they're all just being given to us all at once yeah but we've already experienced them for real one bit at a time up to this point when we met shardik and we had the conversation about about watership down and all that stuff that was cool that was fun when he repeats it here it's not i don't find it offensive
2: yeah i i like you i do enjoy when he talks about his stuff outside of the story but when it happened in the story it just sort of threw me off like ah especially coming after the last section when we talked about how Eddie was saying, oh, I know it's going to be number 19, and oh yeah, this is what's going to happen. And We're belaboring the obvious. Right, exactly. But, hey, it's all fun stuff. I do like it. I think you pointed this out, too, how uh, King the Alcoholic likes to uh, lump himself in with some pretty nice company there, Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Edgar Allan Poe.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's like, hmm, if I just add my name to this list of credible uh, authors maybe by association i will also be
1: considered pretty awesome yeah what else you got for fun stuff a couple things i thought that jake had a really great
0: action hero line so jake and callahan are about to walk into the dixie pig and jake turns to callahan and says let's go give them some last rights He's like 11, so maybe he'd sound like, let's go give them some last rites.
1: It would have been a lot cooler if Callahan had said it. Yeah. Let's go give them some last rites.
2: Yeah, pretty good line. So Jake also figures in when the character of King says that he can send one message into the future. He chooses to give Jake a key to get into the hotel room where Black 13 is. And he writes a message to Jake and he says, this is the truth. And it seemed like a pretty cool callback to Jake's essay from early on when he starts to flip out after he realizes he's dead, but not dead. And he writes that essay that his teacher think is an A++ and really likes it. But I I like that callback.
1: Yeah, that was a good callback.
2: But it
0: also makes me wonder, what's King thinking? King the character.
1: Like, oh, uh,
0: I have the power of a god. I can control all creation in this story. I'm going to set myself the rule for some reason of only one message. Yeah. And it's going to be something kind of obscure and indirect. And it's like, this is the truth. Like, How about giving them a plan to get into the Dixie Pig without getting killed? Yeah. Or they could get themselves into that room without the magic intervention of King's deus es machina Key card, right? Like <laughs> I'm pretty sure they could figure that out. Feels like like it was wasted. Like like I'm gonna use my my power of creation in this tiny way. Speaking of callbacks, another interesting moment is that Sayer gets his boots licked, mm. which is just like Shimi and the, his interaction with the big coffin hunters. That's right. Way back in book four. Now, of course, I'm pretty sure if memory serves that Cuthbert. Came in and intervened before Shimi actually got close enough to lick a boot. Yes. But Mia, using Susanna's body and tongue, uh, was not uh, fortunate enough to have anybody intervene and actually did lick Sayer's boot. So uh,
2: sad for Susanna, but... There's a lot worse that happens to Susanna and Mia, so that boot licking didn't seem so bad a few pages later. Uh-huh. <laughs> Once they get their brains hooked up to the machines and... Uh.
1: Yeah, you make a good point. Everything's uh, everything's relative.
2: So that whole scene with Sarah getting his boots licked, it gave me a very strong vibe of Rosemary's Baby. The movie Rosemary's Baby deals with a young woman who's about to give birth to the devil's baby. She lives in an apartment building in New York City. The other apartment dwellers are all part of this cult that's about to bring it around. And they all seem fairly normal at first, you know, just your regular older people who live in apartments next door, but they show an uncanny interest in this young woman and her and her child. But at the very end, when Rosemary's about to have the baby, the director just does all this fun stuff with camera angles and just the way that these what had been normal looking humans just sort of peer at Rosemary and the way the, the way camera the camera's shaped and they, they just sort of start to gain these weird shadows and don't look quite as human before. And it's all taking place during this almost dinner party-like setting where they're very jocular and very happy and clapping politely as different things happen. And I just got that sense in the Dixie Pig where you've got these semi-human-looking characters and they're having inappropriate conversations and sitting at these nice tables. It just really gave me a very strong Rosemary's Baby vibe.
0: Yeah. There's definitely a strong parallel there, especially if you map the the neighbors in the fancy apartment building to all the people who are already in the Dixie Pig. I don't even know if you could call them people. They're not. They're they no, no, They're definitely disguised not. to look like people, but are not human beings. They don't need fancy camera tricks and <laughs> no. and lighting to to seem
2: menacing and and evil. But that part was almost spookier to me than the actual machines hooking up to them later on. So creepy
1: stuff yeah i had one other line that i liked um, where there's
0: some imagery that's that king paints a picture of with the double hammered heatless moonlight gleam of the railroad tracks Mm. it painted a really nice picture of railroad tracks in the moonlight but i started to really parse the words as i was writing this down and is it double hammered gleam like it's been hammered two times or
1: is it the hammered heatless moonlight gleam but it's doubled because it's two railroad tracks ah
2: i have no idea
1: interesting yes we'll never know
2: we'll never know if i get a chance to ask stephen king any one question i'll make sure it won't be that (laughs) yeah it probably won't be that (laughs) That brings us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish our discussion of book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna. We'll be covering the coda and do our book wrap-up. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. It'll be like, hey, remember that time when you wrote The Dark Tower?
1: That was awesome.